Thank you so much, Courtney. Um, it's just lovely to have her back. She had a baby and disappeared, but she's back doing notices, and what a lovely, friendly face she is. So, uh, a little update. This week, I got my... Well, last week, Thursday, I had my second jab. I'm now double-jabbed, jibby-jabbed, um, is what I call it. And as much as I tried to milk sympathy, I got zero. Um, I'm sorry, but this, this is like a failure in, in our family at the moment. It's just not enough sympathy coming my way. It's really unfair. Is, is anyone with me on this? Yeah, just... I, I'm not seeing any hands. I'm by myself. I'm... <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong, maybe you're not. Anyway, uh, I, I don't always start sermons on a kind of a slightly more serious note, but, um, but I, I do have to start with the story because it's, uh, it, it's really um, close to me. But before the vaccine was, was kind of mass available, as it were, uh, one of my friend's brothers uh, caught COVID uh, and caught it horrifically bad. He's a radiologist in a hospital, and um, I mean, he just hit him as hard as as it possibly could. Um, he was hospitalised straight away, struggling to breathe. Um, and then day after day, it just seemed to get worse and worse and worse, um, to the point where he had total organ failure and they had to put him in a coma in order to just keep him alive. I mean, it was horrendous. Not only this, my brother, um, my brother, my friend, um, he, had, he and his brother had actually just lost their mum back in November. And here was his brother in hospital, leaving his wife and two daughters at home, wondering what was going to happen. And every single day just seemed to be a day of absolute despair and, and hopelessness. Um, and there just didn't see it to be any possibility that this was going to change for the good. Um, and as you can imagine, uh, you, as much as I would, was just left in tears thinking about this close friend of mine going through this horrendous pain, having just walked through the sudden loss of his mom as well. And I remember praying about it and just crying out to God on his behalf. His, his, he would call himself an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. He's not a kind of antagonistic. He loves having conversations about it, but he just doesn't see how God works and fits in the world. Um, and so I prayed on his behalf. I was just like, just, it's just heartbreaking. I can't see this happen. And it was bizarre because almost immediately God felt, I felt like God was speaking to me saying, he's going to be okay. He's going to be, I mean, everything hospital-wise, every record, every uh, stat was looking at the complete and utter opposite. But I felt that peace of God that everything was going to be okay. And I thought, well, I mean, that's lovely for me, but what do I say to my friend do I say to him, everything's going to be, I can't say that. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to just say, hey, I feel like your brother's going to be okay and it's going to be all right and everything's going to be, you, you've got nothing to worry about. You know, he's not going to believe my feeling, my, my hope. And then something interesting happened. God then said, look, that's, this is not about your feeling. This is about a fact that I have spoken. And I wrestled with it. I was thinking, oh my gosh, well, this, this is true. I mean, I'm hearing from God and God is speaking to me and I'm dealing with it as if I'm, I'm feeling it. When actually God, in my mind, is saying this as a fact. Now, this was a scary moment, but basically God was saying, tell him, because it's a fact. I was like, are you kidding? Okay, fine. And it kind of took the pressure off me. And so I spoke to him. I said, look, I, I know this is going to sound strange and crazy and you know I'm a Christian, you know I love God and I've been praying for you brother and I really believe that God says it's going to be okay. Now I know 
that that's hard to believe and it's horrendous at the moment and it doesn't mean it's going to get any better in these next few days. But I believe that God has said he's going to be okay. It was hard to believe for him, for sure. And his words were, I want to believe, but it just doesn't look possible. You know, being in the middle of that moment was horrific for my friend, for his family, and even for me, even though I'd heard from God, it was horrific, the pain, the uncertainty, the, you know, just not sure where anything was going to go. You had no, he had no clue what the outcome would be. And then 73 days in a coma. And then after 73 days, he woke up. He woke up and over the course of a couple of weeks, he started to come off life support. He started to feel better. He started to, I mean, to be fair, he was absolutely confused and disorientated. He absolutely was convinced that one of his colleagues had died in a car crash and until his colleague actually spoken to him and said, no, I'm still here. He was in this completely disoriented phase. But slowly, but slowly, he got better and better. And then a couple of weeks after that, I went for lunch with my friend and we were saying how amazing this is. And he said, can I tell you something? And I said, what is it? And he goes, my brother's home. He's come home. And I just thought this is amazing. I'm still tearing up about it now. Yeah, he was dead, but now he's alive. And I thank God so much for that word in the middle of that season, the middle of that moment, because it kept me praying, it kept me hopeful, it kept me expecting that it was going to be okay. And I learned in that place, more than I've ever learned before, that when God speaks, it's a promise. And when God promises, he will always fulfill it. Who knows in this room that that middle place is one of the hardest places to be. One of the most difficult, one of the most painful, one of the most uncertain places to be. You see, at the beginning of something, you have hope, you have expectation, you have dreams. And at the end, you have the answer. But in the middle is where you feel most alone, most uncertain, most unsure. It's where nothing is certain, especially the outcome. Perhaps one day you woke up and you realized you were stuck in life. It was time to move. You, you had that sense of go. You had that sense of movement and exciting, the wind of change, uh, an expectation that something was going to be different. You had decided to leave that place of wilderness and to enter the promised land that God had spoken. And at God's prompting, you started to do things like you pulled together your CV, you downloaded that dating app, you started that project. You knew that things were going to be okay and nothing was going to stop you. That was your, this was your moment. And maybe months even years later, maybe you're sitting here today and you're still waiting on that promise. You feel like you've dated every single boring weirdo that the world has to offer. Like, how many more can there be? You wonder how many obstacles you're going to need to overcome before that project even gets off the ground. You're having the very same argument with your partner. When is this going to change and if you receive one more email that says, I'm sorry to say that your application has not been successful this time, you are going to scream. You've had enough. If giving up was an option, you'd have done it a long time ago. 
but it's just not an option. You thought about it, maybe you've tried it, but you just know you cannot go back. You possibly, you cannot go back. Maybe lockdown itself was a massive relief for you. You were exhausted, you were overworked, you were always stressed, and suddenly you were given permission to stay at home. You were able to breathe, you were able to go for walks, you were able to work without the office politics. You felt free. And now you're talking to all your colleagues and all your friends and everyone's super excited about getting back together on the 19th. And if anything, it's stressing you out again. You're freaking out a little because you just don't want to go back. You don't want to go back to that place. Normal, you didn't want to go back to normal because normal was not a good place to be. You can't go back. You're afraid to go forward, so you're stuck in the middle. You see, the middle is a difficult place, but it's also an important part of the journey. You cannot get from the beginning to the end without going through the middle. And what happens in the middle is what determines whether you keep on moving forward. As I was thinking about this, I remember a phrase that they say in football, which is the game is won or lost in midfield. And this starts my entire talk of football references because tonight is so important. And if we don't win, you have to re-listen to this talk and just remove those football references. <laughs> it's still a good talk, but um, it'll be less... Do you know, actually, I was saying to the people, I was uh, friends, I was uh, preparing for this talk and I'd come up with all these ideas uh, on the day of the semi-final. And then I realised we might not get through to the final I might do this talk and it's going to be completely irrelevant for everyone. I have never been so stressed watching a like, semi-final before going, we've got to win because my talk is going to be terrible if it doesn't. So personal and selfish. Anyway, the game is won or lost in midfield. So you can have a solid defense. You can take anything the opposition is throwing at you, but if you don't move forward... If you don't get the wins in, it only takes one bad moment to lose the entire game. The midfielder's job is to keep possession, to keep shape, and to move that ball forward. You might make a few mistakes, but if you keep possession, that is, if you take hold of and keep hold of God, and if you keep moving forward, God's promises will never fail. For 40 years, God's people, Israel, was in the middle place. And if you've got your Bibles with you today or phones, you can turn to Joshua 3. I'm going to go there in a few moments. But God's people had um, been chosen, been called. They had ended up in Egypt where they had multiplied. They had turned into millions of people and everything seemed to be going well. But then Egypt were getting a bit insecure. So they basically subjugated them. They made them slaves. Uh, things were just not going well. And they cried out and cried out and cried out for help. And then God remembered them and decided he was going to rescue them. Moses was sent. Moses was called. Moses was told to set my people free to Pharaoh. And then in this incredible story in Exodus with the 10 plagues and this demonstration of God's almighty power, he he had led them out of Egypt and this massive barrier that there was the Red Sea um, was faced, uh, that Israel were facing and there was seemed no way forward was suddenly torn into two and a massive pathway was led and Israel walked through this into freedom and it crashed down and crushed all the opposition that were following them. And then 
in all of this, that they had left slavery in Egypt, the amazing things that happened at Mount Sinai. They had been given all these promises, all these commands, all these ways to live, all this new life and this massive promise that they were going to end up in a promised land. Everything was theirs. But they weren't there yet. And this place in the wilderness wasn't home. They couldn't stay here But as they went and scoped out this place where they had been called to, this promise that they had been given, they realized this land was full of giants. How could they ever settle there? How could they ever reach their place? There was no way they could possibly get there. They knew they couldn't go back to Egypt, but they couldn't imagine going forward to this promised land. They were in the middle, and unless something changed, they were stuck there for good. As we read this account, we pick up four tactics or lessons, whichever happens tonight, um, that will show us how to win our game in midfield. I'll give you them now and uh, we'll revisit them in bits. Uh, First of all, you listen for instructions. Secondly, you keep the ball moving. Thirdly, you go big or you go home. And fourthly, you remember the wins. So firstly, listen for instructions. I don't know if anyone here or anyone watching has a little kid who's in football practice or football club or football groups. I have my six-year-old who's joined one recently and uh, she goes every weekend and uh, I join her, it's on a Sunday morning, so I only go um, when I can get some time off and I go and I, I remember going, I think it was last week I had off and I went to watch her and it's lovely. They do all these little drills and everything's really cute and then they get the, given this little game at the end where they can uh, go against each other. And so I was watching this and and you get, it's interesting, it's chaos. It's interesting, but chaos. And you get some of the kids that literally just run towards wherever the ball is. They have no idea what they're going to do. They just run to the ball. And then you've got others that run away from the ball. They're freaked out. They're going, I have no idea what this is, but I don't want to pay tape on this. And they run the opposite direction. And then you've got a whole bunch of them that just seem to stand talking to each other with lollipops in their mouth. I don't even know where they got the lollipops from, They just happen to have them with them, usually standing on the goal line because that's where they congregate, and they're just talking. It is chaos. And then you've got this coach running around, this great coach, really friendly, really excited, giving them clear instructions, and they are completely ignoring it. And it is absolutely no surprise that many goals are conceded and the game is absolutely lost. In Joshua 3, verse 2, it says this, Three days later, the Israelite officers went through the camp, giving these instructions to the people. When you see the Levitical priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, move out from your positions and follow them. You see, instructions are crucial. They give direction and guidance for the game. As a manager, Gareth Salgate is probably sitting with the team right now, giving them clear directions and instructions for what they are going to do tonight. Structure, form, formation. Um, he, knows, he knows what's going to happen, and he has set them up. If they go onto that pitch with a clear idea, then he has done his job. But, you know, he doesn't just go, well, I've done my job. I'm going to go and sit and watch the match in the VIP room. Hopefully we'll win. We'll see what happens, but I'll have a daiquiri and enjoy it. No, he's right there on the sidelines, and he'll be there all this evening's match, all from beginning to end. And what he'll be doing is not just watching, but he'll be calling out changes throughout the match. You see, he has this unique perspective where he knows his players' possibilities and capabilities. He can see the entire match. He knows everything that's going on, and he knows how to adjust in order to win the game. You see, we have a God 
who is not silent, but who speaks, who directs, who instructs. He has a close eye on each and every single one of us. He is watching every single one of our moments. He knows our weak spots. He knows where we keep on losing ground. He knows the opposition's plans. He knows the opportunities we have to gain ground, the possibilities that we cannot see because we're only looking in one direction. He knows what we need to do to move forward. And such is his love for us that he is always calling out instructions and guidance for us to follow him. But mostly, he knows that without listening to his instructions, we will end up going backwards. We will end up in chaos, just running around. See, God knew that if Israel went into the promised land without learning to listen and follow his instructions, not only would they not be able to defeat these giants that were in the land, but they would not be able to take hold of what he has for them, and the chances are they'll end up back in the same place where they started. You see, the scenery might look different, but they'll end up as slaves again. You see, We think we're moving forward when God is saying, look, you're moving backwards. Please listen to me. I have your best intentions if you just trust me. We want to move and find this healthy new relationship, but we're still hurting from the previous ones and nothing's changed and the chances are we're going to make the same mistakes and end up in the same place with this new relationship. We want to change jobs. We want to find a new place. Uh, but if, unless we get, let God give us the tools and the direction, we're probably going to succumb to the same temptations and challenges and uh, overwhelming aspects of this new job. It will be a different job, different relationship, but same place. Before moving God, before moving God, before moving forward, perhaps God is calling you to forgive someone, to apologize to someone, to maybe have a difficult conversation, and he's telling you to do that. You see, God says, I don't just want to get you out. I want to set you free. I don't want to just get you out of a situation. I want to set you free from it so you don't go back. I want, to li- you know, I want you to live a whole new life. I didn't just get my people out of Egypt. I destroyed the opposition so that they weren't being chased. They are free. I do not want you to go back into slavery. Listen. So how do they move forward? By learning and to listen to God's instructions, God's voice. In Joshua 1, uh, chapter 1, God says very clearly to Joshua, be careful to obey the, all of the law my servant Moses gave you and do not turn from it from, uh, to, turn to, from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written on it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. I have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. Reading the word of God And knowing that God is with you through his spirit and he's speaking to you on a daily basis will give you the boldness to move forward and the clarity to hear his voice in those defining moments. Let me give an example. I used to have a friend called uh, Daniel. Uh, He was an amazing guy, loads of energy, huge excitement, and and just this incorrigible, courageous, daredevil uh, um, kind of spirit about him. 
Um, and he loved the Bible. He loved his word. He, he always had this well-torn Bible, well-kind-of-leafed Bible with him all the time, a tiny little one that he can carry. And he had this opportunity to go to Myanmar or Burma to deliver um, suitcases, 50-odd Bibles, to a place where they generally don't uh, let the kind of um, religious freedom in that place. And so he uh, had a little bit of training from this organization that does it, and he jumps on the plane with his two suitcases, each of them full of Bibles with his clothes on top, and uh, put them through, checked him in, and, uh, you know, he's been trained, you know, okay, get to the other side, pick them up, and then go meet someone. Well, worst case scenario, he jumps on the plane, he was looking for his baggage, they just didn't seem to be coming round. He stood there for ages, and then he looked across, and absolute fear as two security guards were standing with his bags with these massive white X's on them. And he had been told in his training, if you see that, the chances are that they know there's Bibles in there. You should probably just ignore them, walk away, do whatever you can, just avoid that situation. And well, my friend wasn't that kind of person. Um, and so he, he just said, God, you're going to have to help me. I've, I've come all this way. I've got this hope, this life for people. I can't just walk away now. I can't go backwards. But how am I going to go forwards? How is this going to work? And then as he was praying, he, rem he remembered and God prompted him of all these incredible, courageous stories of judges and prophets in the Old Testament and all the apostles in the New Testament. And he had this sense that God was calling him to be bold and courageous. And so he did this, I think, ridiculous thing, but he did it anyway. He just said, okay, God, I'm going to get those cases. And so he took a deep breath. He said, God, you've got to be with me on this. I'm going to go forward. I don't know what's going to happen, but you've got to be with me. So he went. He walked over to these cases. He looked at the guys and said, thank you so much. Picked them up and walked off with them. And he didn't look back. And the security guards, from what he understood, were just going, what, what, what? Okay, fine. <laughs> and in that moment, he was able to deliver these 50 Bibles uh, to people in Burma they would not have had them. It seemed impossible to go back. It seemed impossible to go forward. But here he was just praying, saying, God, lead me in this. And what an amazing story to follow. It is so important that we listen for instructions. God is always talking to us. The second tactic is this, keep moving. Keep moving. Even when you don't know what to do, keep moving. Joshua uh, 3 verse 8, Joshua went to the priests who were holding the Ark of the Covenant and said, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, what, God? Uh, look, uh, we've followed you to the river. We've come out of wilderness. We're standing at the river's edge. Okay, we've done everything that you've asked us to do now, God. Uh, we're here. Uh, I think it's your turn now to do something. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe you could deliver us. Maybe you could, whatever it is, you know, it's your turn. You, you act, and you're, now you're asking us to step into it? I'm sorry, that's just crazy. Yeah, we're not going to do that. God, maybe you could act. Maybe you could do something. But God said, um, yeah, keep moving. Keep moving. Take an extra step. You see, if you stay still, you're going to get stuck. If you stay still, you're going to get tackled. If you stay still, you're going to lose hope. Keep moving. Or if it's more in your language, just keep swimming. Just keep swimming, as Dora said. Just keep swimming. You see, God wasn't asking them to talk by faith or think by faith or feel by faith. He was also asking them to act by faith, to hear his voice, and no matter how big or small, how crazy, how daring, just act on it. 
God, I feel so trapped at the moment. I just can't see a way forward. And God says, I hear you. And you've got to trust me in this. I'm working all things for the good of those who love you. But while we're here, can I just remind you of that person? Would you, would you mind reaching out to them to see how they're doing? I'll, I'll deal with all this stuff. You just reach out to that person. I'm sorry, God, what? Look, I haven't got time to think about that person. I haven't got time to think about someone else. I need you to break through in my life right now. I haven't got time to be doing other things. Just, just do it. Just do it for me. I'm sorry, God, but... I don't want to speak to them. Look, they've been going through a, a really difficult time. They've got some loads of stuff on themselves. I don't know if I want to talk to them about what I'm going through. I haven't got capacity to talk to them. I'm just barely surviving. I don't want to burden them. Fine, I'll talk to them. <laughs> but only if I know this is for you, okay? I, I need confirmation. You need to make it clear. You need to send the sign. You need, maybe they can call me, and then I'll speak to them. Maybe if that happens, God, then I know it's you, Right? And I don't want to get this wrong. I don't want to mount this up. I mean, I'll, I'll think about it. I mean, pray about it. Think about it. Does that sound familiar to anyone in the room? I've certainly been there. As John Akiv says, overthinking isn't a personality trait. It's the sneakiest form of fear. You see, when you start to overthink things and you're not coming up with any more answers than you had before, the chances are, now, that's a sign that you should just act. Just do something. Just try something. Just keep moving. Just take a shot. As Wayne Gretzky, the famous ice hockey player, said, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. Just try something. Do something. Keep moving. You know, this is way more than just, okay, God, I'll go to church. Okay, I'll go to church. Yeah, that's the answer. Um, because... You know, that's, that's not enough. <laughs> to quote my wise and beautiful nine-year-old daughter, as we were talking the other day, church is where God is easily found, but outside is where God really helps. If you want to see something happen, just try something. Just do something. My wife is a teacher in a school with kids with behavioral difficulties, and I mean, their life situations, the scenarios that have gotten into this on most parts is horrendous. Not everyone, some of them just have learning difficulties, but a lot of people's situations are horrendous. Um, but she has this incredible love for these kids that have been expelled from absolutely every school that they've been to, that society has given up, they've dumped them in this school and said, look, this is their last chance, just do what you can. Um, educate them if you can, but just keep them out of trouble. And my wife just has this wonderful concept that actually, you know, God blesses those that society has given up on. And she looks for every opportunity to give them the best. And the other day she came home uh, with this idea. She said, look, these kids just need some, you know, maybe an iPad in the class, something that we can take photos of their work, we can share with their teachers, their parents, sorry, uh, and something to keep the distracted, the ones that really can't concentrate. Oh, all we need are five iPads. Can, can, can you buy five iPads for us? I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll just dig into our bank account, buy five iPads. I mean, no, no one's worrying about that. Of course we're not going to do that. Sorry, love. Um, she has way more faith than me. But she says, but they deserve the best. And so, you know, she was in this situation where we go, look, we, we don't really have the money for five iPads. And the school didn't have any money because they're spending everything that they get, which is a tiny budget, on just doing the absolute essentials. It looked impossible. And, uh, but she couldn't give up. 
She said, look, this is what they need. This is what God needs to do. This looks like an impossible situation, and I can't see a solution. And so she did this thing where she prayed about it. And then she said, okay, God, this is up to you now. I'm going to leave this to you. And then, similar to my example, she suddenly thought of a friend. And so she called them. She wasn't talking about iPads to start with. She you know, shared kind of things. She started talking about the school. But mainly, actually, what she did was just talk about the friend and the situation that she's going through at this moment, uh, really struggling with various things, family, she's a single parent, all, you know, all of these things. And, uh, and Tara just spent some time praying with her, talking with her. Anyway, a few days later, this lady is sitting in a meeting, uh, this job, and, uh, and they said, oh, last point of business. Um, we have some iPads that we need to get rid of because we're upgrading ours. Uh, does anyone know where we can give these to? <laughs> so the lady's hand just went straight up. Yes, I know somewhere. Give them to me. And uh, <laughs> a week later, in several suitcases, back from London, this lady bought not five, but 50 iPads. 50 iPads. I know, I mean, to some degree, it seems a bit kind of whatever, materialistic, but isn't that just wonderful of God? Just the abundance of it and the simplicity of my wife just going, okay, God, great idea. Love that idea. This is from you. Over to you now. I'm not going to stop and wait and complain that you haven't done it. I've done all I can, and now I'm waiting for you to act. In the meantime, I'll just keep moving. I'll keep asking. I'll keep talking. I'll keep praying. I'll keep doing whatever you're guiding me and telling me to do. And then in such a wonderful way, God always delivers. Listen for instructions. Keep moving. Go big or go home. I love this. Actually, the phrase I wanted to use, but it's not a very good tactic, is the bigger the game, the bigger the win. Joshua 3.15, now the Jordan is in flood all during harvest. See, the priests approached the river, the Jordan, and saw it was in flood season. Flood season is not the time to cross a river. The water's way too high. There's real danger of drowning you have the least control of what goes on and the outcome, and you have the least chance of success. And yet God seems to do his best work during flood season. You see, when the water is too high, when the problem is too great, when the needs are too daunting, when it's absolutely beyond your possibilities and your abilities, that is a sign that God is going to do something amazing. You see, when the flood is high, that's harvest time. That's the best time to act. Verse 15 continued. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away. <laughs> Whatever you do, do not wait until flood recedes. Do not wait until it gets easier. Do not sit there patiently thinking, you know, God, just make this a bit easier because what happens when you do is the floods recede and harvest time is over. Now is the best time to act. When it seems the most difficult, when it seems the most impossible. You see, if you cross the river when it's safe, when the flood's gone, you will get very little fruit. You see, when we rely on human solutions, we will achieve human-sized results. When we rely on God's solutions, we'll achieve God-sized results. Which one do you need to get you out of that middle place? I cannot do that, God. But, but God can. No one else has been able to, but God can. 
Let's say it with me. But God, but God, but God. God can open a door. God can remove the obstacle, but God can soften those hearts. Back in 2016, I had this uh, pretty colorful and crazy bike accident um, where I'd come off my bike, traveled about 60 foot in the air, landed uh, completely unconsciously on my face. Never a great way to finish a bike ride. And, uh, and in doing so, caused some you know, pretty decent scrap um, uh, fracture on my skull, had some you know, brain damage that I realized later, which is all fine now, by the way. Um, and it was just horrendous. Now that was May, and I was supposed to be leading a mission trip to India in August. Now, I mean, by all sense of accounts, we should have just quit it, but I, I did just keep on going, do you know what, I think I'll be okay. Actually, I wanted to be out of the hospital the same day. They're like, no, you, you need to stay in hospital. I was like, no, I'll be fine. I'll be back to work on Monday. No, I wasn't. Um, but in August, I had this mission trip to lead to, in India. Now, I'd you know, been on a few. I thought this would be okay. Um, but as the time got closer, I realized this was going to be a lot harder than I realized. Um, I had this thing called Lamites, which is basically whenever I looked down, it was like my nervous system said, what are you doing? And my whole body would start to feel like some kind of crazy fuzziness was going through it. My arms would tingle and everything. And I'd read up on this and it was temporary, but it was pretty intense. And then when I looked up, I got dizzy. And uh, I spoke to the doctor about it. He said, oh, don't worry about this. Just a couple of loose bone fragments in your head. You'll be fine. <laughs> so uh, here I was going, I can't look up because I get dizzy. I can't look down because I go crazy. And I'm going to go to India to lead this mission trip um, for you know, two weeks in August uh, with this team that haven't done many mission trips. Okay, great, let's do it. <laughs> and so I remember jumping on that plane and thinking, I'll be okay. I won't be okay. Uh, and I started to feel the overwhelming sense of exhaustion. Um, and this was before I said, God, I, I have nothing to give. Uh, I'm just here for you. I, I, I know how to do this stuff. But I just don't have the energy to do it. And I remember praying that prayer, and as we touched down, just giving it to God, I said, okay, God, I'm here. You're going to have to do everything. And uh, we had a great time as a team. We had a, such a lovely time. We connected well. We had really loads of fun. But every time we tried to do a talk or ministry, I was wiped. I um, mean, I managed to do a few talks. We shared it out a little bit as a team. Um, but do you know what was incredible? It's just starting to see almost from the first trip first visit to a church or to people, that God was already at work. People were immediately being healed. Knees, backs, straight away were being healed. And we thought, this was amazing. We love this. And then we got invited to someone else, and I was like, God, I have nothing. I literally have nothing. And I remember day in, day out, just going, to God, I have nothing. It's got to be you. God, I have nothing. This has got to be you. And day in, day out, whenever we did something, God did some amazing things. We had uh, a young, I think she was 17, a girl, girl uh, preach for the very first time, and a handful of people gave their lives to Jesus straight away. We saw over 60-plus documented, we started writing them down, healings of people, including a paralyzed arm, uh, a fractured foot, and various other things. People healed in that moment. So many prayers were answered, and I thought, God, I have nothing. How are you doing this? Oh, you're doing it without me. You, you, so this is not my strength. This is your strength. I love this. And it was definitely that moment of realizing that this is what God does when we get out of the way. When we stop relying on our own strength, stop relying on human-sized results and work and trusting God-sized uh, solutions and God-sized results. 
Because when God steps in, he doesn't just fail. He doesn't just meet the demands. He always goes bigger. Psalm 33 says this, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance despite all of its great strength. It cannot save. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice for we trust in his holy name. I love that. In hearts rejoice. See, we can celebrate when we come to the point where we have nothing else to give. But God has spoken. That means that it's gonna be God's turn to show up and do something. We have this moment of celebration in our hearts, we rejoice for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. How often do we face something thinking if we just try harder, if we just work harder, we can overcome it. In doing so, we settle for this human-sized solution and human-sized results. You know, the wonderful thing about the middle place is that it forces us to realize that we cannot pay, we cannot Go fund me. We cannot talk our way out of every situation. And we can only do so much in our own strength. Muhammad Ali famously has a story where he got on a plane and this air stewardess came over and said, would you mind buckling up? And Muhammad Ali's like, I'm Muhammad Ali. I don't need a seat buckle. I'm okay, thank you. And uh, the lady went away and she came back and said, like, no, sir, you're really going to need to do this. You're going to need to buckle up. And he's like, I, I, I'm Muhammad Ali. I can sting like a, uh, sting like a butterfly. I can float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. I'm invincible. I don't need a seatbelt. And she goes, you need a seatbelt. He's like, I'm Muhammad Ali. I am Superman. Superman don't need no seatbelt. She goes, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> so do your seatbelt. Know your limitations. Know what you're really capable of doing and then give the rest to God. See, we have this thought process when we face sin. When we ignore or go against God, and when we fail to hold up our end of the relationship, in fact, when we damage any relationship that we're in, we fall into this trap to think that we believe that we can make it right with enough good behavior and enough words. We can talk or walk our way out of any situation. It'll be okay. See, that might placate. It might appease the person. But that relationship will never be the same again because they can't trust you. Because you've shown yourself to be untrustworthy. And no matter how much good you do, no matter how much wonderful life you live, there's always going to be that thought in the back of the head, that possibility that, hey, you've done it before, you might just do it again. See, the only way a relationship can be restored in full is if the other person chooses to burden the cost of forgiveness, to not count what you have done against you and to choose to trust you again. You see, that's not easy. It hurts them. You see, they have to give up. They have to die to the desire to hold you accountable and act like you have not done that thing and so you will not do it again. That is no easy choice or decision to make. That is not a bill that you or I can pay. We are completely at the mercy of the other person. We are completely at the mercy of God's choice to forgive us. But while but God demonstrates his lone love for us in this, while we were still sinners, while we were still making mistakes, while we were still messing up, 
Christ died for us. You see, this is amazing, Joshua 3.17. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all of Israel passed by and so the whole nation had completely crossed, uh, passed on dry ground. You see, the river was at flood season and anyone who jumped in should have been washed away and probably died. Uh, They wouldn't make it to the promised land. They'd be washed away, never to see it. But God, through the ark, for the priest stepped into the river of death and held back the waves for all of Israel, all of those who call him their God, to follow him. Now, he waited for every single man, woman, and child, regardless of what they had done, to follow him and cross into safety. See, Jesus, our ultimate priest, has stepped into the water and has died on the cross And in the same way that he didn't get washed away, never to be seen again, he held back those rivers of death so that when we, all of those who belong to him, all of those who choose him and trust him and follow him, no matter what we have done, will follow him and cross into the promised land. If you think you can put things right by human solutions, you'll get human-sized results and you'll die. But if you put your life into the hands of God's solution, you'll get God-sized results and you'll live even though you'll die. And then finally, um, really milking this talk, obviously, um, remember the win. Remember the wins. 1966, everybody. 1966, right? Everyone's got it engraved. It happened before so it could happen again, right? We've been singing It's Coming Home since 1996, it's worth saying. Um, and, but for some inextricable, unexplainable reason, we still have this national hope because we did it before we can do it again. Joshua 4, verse 5, Go over before the ark of the God of your Lord and step into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on their shoulder to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial for the people of Israel forever. What miracles, what stones do you need to remember? What stones have you picked up that you need to revisit to remind yourself of God's faithfulness? Where were you when he came to you? When did you discover his ability to deliver you? When did you see his hand at work? When did you see him provide for you when you ran out of your own resources? These stones are reminders of the miracles that God can do and act as places to remind us of what he can do again. As we often say, God's faithfulness in the past gives us faith for the future. What has God done in your lives that you should that give you courage that he's going to do something again? My question for you right now are, where are your stones? I have a, a list of stones I was preparing in this talk, just thinking of it in my life. When I was 18, at the lowest point of my life, when I was in trouble, when I was suicidal, when I was hopeless, God seemed to intervene in that middle place and just seemed to start to piece together bits of my life. I cried out for help, and it took me at least three years before I realized that God was at work and things started to change. When I was 21, I was in the middle of being convinced to leave Christianity and follow God, uh, to follow uh, Islam. And within 24 hours, God gave me an experience that I could never deny was Him and His Holy Spirit at work. 
When I was 29, I was in the middle of praying for a child that the doctors had told us we could never physically have. And a year later, we found out we were pregnant. And when I was 33, we as a family of four, including a newborn baby, were made homeless. And I had no idea what was going to happen, only for God to give us a dream house six months later. My friend's brother was in hospital for 73 days in a coma with no hope of transformation. 73 days later, God's word was fulfilled. And there are things we're still waiting for as a family that he has not answered some days, some weeks, some years. But remembering those stones gives us faith for the future. In each of these, I was in a middle place. So where are you in a middle place today? Where has God rescued you in the past? What stones do you need to remember? What things do you need to recount to remember that God has worked? Could the worship band come up? You see, God, who has brought you through yesterday, is alive today and is going to carry you into and through tomorrow. As we start worship, I'd like us to do something different. I want you to get your phones out. I want you to get your pen and paper out. You do that. Grab it out wherever you are, at home or in person. Just pull your phone out. And I want you to open the notes app or whatever it is you've got. Can everyone do this right now? And I want you to remember where were your stones? What are those moments? And do what I did. Where did God just inextricably break through? Where did he do the impossible? And while you're making note of that, remind yourself how long you had to wait for that. For some of it, it'll be 24 hours. For some of it, it'll be six years. You need to remember, I need to remember these moments of God's faithfulness. We're gonna have some music playing while you just take a moment I mean, if you're not quite there with God, then just think of those impossible moments you've faced in your life. And just to answer the same question, how long did it take for things to turn around? For me, I realized later that God was at work in those places, but at the time I didn't realize it. So wherever you are, whatever moments you can remember, when did things turn around? What stones do you need to bring out to remind yourself and your children of God's faithfulness? When you've written three, five of those moments down, why don't you stand and join me as we worship together? Because our God is good. Bless you, Lord God.